I've been uh, been moved and changed as we've studied through Second Peter. I told Karen the other night, every book, I mean, every book I preach through, I love it. I, it's like you, you own, obviously, more of it than you did before you started. And I just, I lo- I've loved Second Peter, although it's quite strong. Um, it is the Word of God, and I love it. Um, he's God and nobody else is, right? I mean, I think if you have that in the forefront of your mind as we venture into these, these texts tonight, um, that will help a lot. He is an awesome, fearsome, consuming fire God. Um, C.S. Lewis is right. The Bible is a book written for grown-ups in the sense that God is talking to us about real things. He's talking to us about ultimate things. He's talking to us about um, not only salvation, but He's talking to us also about damnation. God is a God of, an, of amazing and breathtaking grace. And beloved, if we're Bible believers, we understand that God is a God of terrifying and breathtaking wrath. We've been seeing some of that as we've been going through Second Peter. I've been saying to you since the early part of chapter 2, because it was in the text, God has judged. He judged the angels. He judged the world. He wiped everybody out but eight people during Noah's day. And He judged Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know there are other examples in the Old Testament where God's judgment has, has fallen. So, I've been saying God has judged and God will judge. That's what we're seeing in chapter 3. God will judge. The last day is coming. God's judgment, His final judgment is coming. But as I contemplated all we've talked about in the last few weeks, I realized that everything I've said is true. It's just not complete. And I think this is what the Lord wanted me to share tonight. Everything I've said is true. It's just not complete. Because if we read our Bibles, we understand that not only has God judged, and God will judge, God is judging. God is judging. And that's what we'll talk a little bit about tonight. You guys know Romans 1.18. The women do, I know, because you guys have been studying um, Romans this year. Romans 1.18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So, if, if some novice or some unbeliever asks you, well, how is God's wrath being revealed? Okay, Romans 1.18 tells us that it's being revealed. How is it being revealed? How would you answer that question? You know, while we're here together for 90 minutes or so, it will happen 9,000 times around the world. Someone will die. While we're here for 90 minutes, around 9,000 people will die around the world. So, how is God's wrath being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness? Through death. Through death. What are the wages of sin? Death. 
We're all headed to death. It's unavoidable lest the Lord come back. We're all headed there. Romans 6.23, those are our wages. We have earned them. We are all sinners. We are all sinners. So, one of the most tangible and powerful manifestations of the wrath of God in time is the fact that every human being comes to death. Romans 5.12 says, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sin. Death is coming for each of us. And we do not know when that will be. This is an outworking of God's judgment against our rebellion. If we know our Bibles from Genesis chapter 3. So to be biblically accurate, God has judged. God will judge. God is judging. And so I think that's the point of the message tonight. It seemed good to, as I prayed about it, I didn't really want to do it. I, I really like, I get into a groove of the book. I didn't really want to come off. I was reluctant to do it. I was arguing with the Lord in one, you know, sense. But He pushed me here. And so, I, I, as I... As I begin to contemplate, I realize there's a lot of profit here because it really does, it's the perfect sermon between verse 7 and verse 8 of chapter 3 of 2 Peter. And it will lay a, an extremely strong foundation for next week's sermon. As I thought about the Bible studies, the men are studying the Gospel of John. God is a Savior, right? And the women are in the early chapters of Romans. Man is a rebel, right? And the young adults are studying uh, the attributes of God. Presently, we're studying the decrees of God, which is God's sovereign purpose in all things. And I got to thinking, well, this sermon, it's good for every Bible study. It will buttress, support, and clarify, and amplify, I think, where all the Bible studies are. And so Friday night, I was, as I was watching the news, and I was watching that huge typhoon headed toward the Philippines, it occurred to me that natural disaster is a difficult but very sure lens through which we can see both the outworking of God's grace in these last days as well as God's wrath. Let me begin with a quote by John Piper. I'm going to quote him multiple times tonight. Uh, he's my favorite contemporary theologian, and he writes um, so strongly and well on this topic. Piper says this, Against the overwhelming weight and seriousness of the Bible, and actually if you study your Bible, you realize just how weighty it is, right? Just how serious it is. I know, well, let me finish this quote. It'll be better than anything I could say. Against the overwhelming weight and seriousness of the Bible, much of the church is choosing to become more light, shallow, and entertainment-oriented, and therefore successful in its irrelevance to massive suffering and evil. The popular God of fun church is simply too small and affable to hold a hurricane in His hand. I love that quote. 
That's Jehovah God. Jehovah God is not too small to hold or affable to hold a hurricane in His hand. He goes on to say, Piper goes on to say, if we would simply open our Bibles and read them, Scripture would explode our trivial notions of the Almighty. It's one reason it's hard to you know, preach a sermon like this is because some of you have come in here and you have a really, really small God. You'd, some of you, maybe none of you do, but I suspect, even though we have a small group, some of you are still holding on to trivial notions about Jehovah God. You still think He can be managed. You still think that religion will be enough. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He is enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth Beloved, He is an awesome God. And I fear that in these last days, in many places, He's little more than a caricature of what Scripture actually says about Him. So, this might be a hard sermon. If, you, if you're still you know, entertaining trivial notions about God, it could be a difficult sermon. But the other thing I want to say at the outset, is that it's my desire to only speak accurately and biblically about God. That's always my desire. No half-truths. No more. No sentimental cliches. No man-made caricatures of Jehovah God. Just present Him as He presents Himself in Scripture. That's our goal. It was December 26, 2004. I'll uh, never forget because I had a friend... In Indonesia, it was the 9.0 earthquake in the Indian Ocean. It generated a 100-foot or 30-meter tsunami wave that hit Indonesia and 14 other countries. Google tells me that around 250,000 people were killed in that natural disaster. That's just a mind-boggling number. It's, it's a stunning number. A quarter of a million people, bam. Inevitably, when these things happen, the questions about God and the accusations against God come. Where was He? Why did He let this happen? Why didn't God do something? If God were good, He would have prevented this. If God were almighty, He would have stopped this. God's either not there, He's not good, or He's not almighty. Now, these are the kinds of things that are, are said in the world at large when an event like this takes place. It's true, isn't it? It's been my experience. You tell me if you've had a different one in the secular media. About the only time God is mentioned is when He's being indicted or mocked. And after this event, I can remember coming across an article written by David Hart. He wrote for the Wall Street Journal at that time, and he says this, No Christian is licensed to utter odious banalities about God's inscrutable counsels or blasphemous suggestions that all of this mysteriously serves God's good 
in. So, as a Bible believer, if you're here tonight and you believe the Bible, you profess to believe the Bible, how do you respond to Mr. Hart? Does God speak on these matters? Does the Christian have something meaningful to say in the public square when these things happen? I do remember still in 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf Coast of America. I can remember that an American news analyst, his name was Daniel Shore, he said this, If God is the intelligent designer, He has something to answer for. Okay, Christian, how do you respond? When people accuse your God and mock your God out in the world, you know, we don't just need to stand there with a blank look on our face. We should have something to say because God has something to say about these kinds of events. 1981, I still remember this. I'm a lot older than you guys. Um, Rabbi Harold Kushner wrote a book entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I don't recommend it. But regarding natural disasters, he basically asserts that God has no part in them and He is essentially powerless to stop them. Again, how does the Bible-believing Christian respond to such a comment? Is God powerful enough to create a cosmos but not powerful enough to control it? What does the Bible say? And I've, I'm just going to say this. I, I think I've been saying it a lot lately. But, you know, the Bible, you know, God's not trying to explain everything to us in the Bible. The Bible is not God's explanation. It's simply God's revelation. It's one of the beautiful and glaring truths of the book of Job. God does not explain anything. He simply reveals Himself to Job. And at the end of the book, Job is full of awe and wonder, and he is worshiping. Listen, beloved, I would rather have the revelation of God than 10,000 explanations. I don't know about you. You know, I'm always asked to explain things. That's honest. That's okay. I'm a professional, a religious professional. I'm supposed to be a theologian and all this stuff, right? So people ask me questions. That's good. That's fine. I don't have a problem with it. But I, a lot of times I have to say, God does not explain Himself to me or anyone else. He has revealed Himself. And so we know what He has said. And sometimes we need to put our hands over our mouth and leave it there. He doesn't explain Himself, but He does graciously reveal Himself. So in the face of jaw-dropping natural disaster, do we have anything to say? Does the born-again believer, the Bible-believing Christian, I'm not talking about cultural Christians, I'm talking about people who actually love this, uh, you know, read this, study this, live this. That's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about cultural Christians. I'm talking about born-again lovers and disciples of Jesus. Do we have anything to say? Yes. We're the only ones on the planet with anything to say. Of any consequence. Because God talks about these things in His Word. John Piper again. In the face of disaster, we weep with those who weep. And as we have opportunity, we aid and assist the survivors in distress. But sooner or later, people, people want more than empathy and aid. They want answers. 
When love has wept and worked, it must have something to say about God. It doesn't have to have all the answers. Only God has all the answers. But we have the Bible and it is not silent on these matters. I want to say while God has not revealed all things to us, He has revealed the indispensable things, beloved. We do not understand everything, but we understand the essential things. And we need to be able to speak it out in the world. God has judged. God is judging. God will judge. So, what about all of these natural disasters, tsunamis, earthquakes, hurricanes, tornadoes, floods, volcanic eruptions? Is there... Is there a flaw in the intelligent designs, designer's design? Is, is, is this God's fault? I mean, did he, was He incompetent when He put the creation together? God answers the question. And I read it to you earlier. Romans chapter 8. God answers the question. So what is Paul? I read it to you earlier. I won't read the text again, but what's he saying here? That the creation has been subjected to futility and is being enslaved to corruption. So who did this? Did Adam do it when he sinned? Did Satan do it? The text is clear. God did it. God subjected the creation to futility. There's a massive biblical truth here that natural man does not accept and too many Christians do not fully grasp or understand sin, and I want you to hear this, sin against an infinitely good, holy, righteous, and just God is unspeakably heinous, monstrous, and horrific. I know that most of us do not think about our sin like that. That's how God thinks about our sin. It is heinous to Him, it is monstrous to Him, and it is horrific. So when God judged the sin of mankind, the whole created order was subjected to futility. It's part of God's judgment. God means for men to understand that natural disasters are not some flaw in His design of the natural order, but it is a consequence of our sin. The Bible's clear about this. Natural disaster is a physical picture of a moral reality. John Piper again. Sufferings of this life are part of a universal God-decreed collapse of creation into disorder because of sin. I know we don't think like this. Certainly the world doesn't think like this. The problem is many of us who pro profess to be Christians, we don't even think like this. We're supposed to think like this. God expects us to think like this. Piper continues, God has subjected the world to futility because of sin. Why do you think the world doesn't want to use that word, word sin? Why do you think the world tries to extract the word sin? The world hates that word. Piper continues, Therefore, all the misery in the world, and it is great, 
It's a bloody declaration about the ghastly horror of sin. Beloved, God put us in paradise. We sinned. You know, people always ask me, why is the world so messed up? I said, because of you. It's your fault. It's my fault. It's our forebear's fault. And if we actually read our Bibles and understand them, we, we, we understand we, we're supposed to own this. We're supposed to own this. Piper continues, all natural evil is a statement about the horror of moral evil. Unbelievers and unregenerate nominal Christians don't like to hear this. They find it abhorrent, even offensive. They scoff at uh, these biblical truths. It's ludicrous. You know, this kind of teaching, it's ludicrous to those who put the life of man above the glory of God. I don't want you to ever forget that. Many put the life of man above the glory of God. Do I have to say it? God does not. God does not put the life of man above His glory. God does not. Beloved, it's because fallen man has no real concept of the infinite holiness of their Creator and no real concept of the horrific evil of their own sin. So, is the Bible telling us that natural disasters are the result of sin? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what the Bible is teaching. All natural disasters are the result of the sin of Adam in a universal sense. Were it not for the universal fall and sin of man, natural disasters would not exist. We'd still be in the garden. We'd still be in paradise. So, and I want you to listen to me very carefully. I don't want to be misunderstood. Is the Bible saying that the sin of the Indonesians and other nationalities in that, in that region warranted such a catastrophe? Is the Bible saying that the sin of the Americans living on the Gulf Coast warranted such a disaster? Is the Bible saying that the sin of the Japanese in, in, in 2011 warranted such a calamity, the, the, the great tsunami that they, that they had? I want you to hear me. The Bible is clear. Yes. But I want you to understand, and we're going to see it in the text, in the words of Jesus, the answer is yes, but no more than you or I. Their sin warranted it, but their sin was no worse than my sin. Their sin is no greater than your sin and my sin. Their sin is no worse than your sin and, and, and my sin. Beloved, you deserve calamity. I deserve calamity today. I deserve disaster today because of my sin against the holy and benevolent and gracious and kind and good God. I deserve death now. The wages of sin is death. I should, be, I should be in hell. This is how the Bible talks, beloved. I know 
Many churches don't talk like this anymore. <laughs> this is how the Bible talks. We're, we're trying, you know, when we come in here, we're trying to get God's perspective. I, I, don't, I could care less about man's perspective. I really, I, I, I have no use for man's perspective. He may say some good things. You know, religious men may say some good things. They may issue some, some great creeds and edicts. But, you know, at the end of the day, I just want to know what God says. And I told you last week when we come in here, we talk about real stuff. I'm not going to waste your time, you know, giving you milk toast. I mean, you can get that anywhere you want. And I'm not going to waste my time preparing milk toast. I'm going to spend my time going deep in the Word of God and then challenging you to believe the Word of God, even when it's uncomfortable, even when it's hard to understand. I want to say this. We should not be astonished the day that calamity comes. We should be astonished every day it does not come. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? Every day, every breath, every heartbeat, it's grace! It's grace. You don't deserve it. In fact, you deserve to be in hell right now. That's where I deserve to be. R.C. Sproul said it perfectly. He indicts the human race. He says, we're shocked at justice and we presume on grace. We talked about it a little bit Thursday night at the Young Adult Bible Study. We, you know, we have this misplaced amazement. Man is amazed that God doesn't bless me more. Why doesn't God bless me more? Why doesn't God give me that? I want that. Why doesn't He do it? I prayed to Him. What kind of God is He? Right? Man is amazed that God does it, that God withholds blessing, but the Bible teaches that man should be amazed that God is withholding your judgment. Are you amazed? If you're not amazed, you've not understood the Bible or the gospel. Beloved, you should be amazed that God lets your heart beat one more time. You get to breathe His air. You know, you get to inhale one more time. It's grace, it's mercy, it's forbearance, it's patience. It's the compassion of God on you. You know, we kind of, don't we? Especially living in the prosperous part of the world that we live in. We kind of expect every day to go perfectly, right? We just, we'd expect every day to go perfectly. Or at least pretty good. When God has said the wages of sin is death. Do you get my point? Who praises God for the 100,000 days that wrath has been withheld? Whoever praises God for that? Tell me. Who praises God for the 100,000 days of wrath that's been withheld? Because He's patient and merciful. We're going to see it in the text next week. He's not coming back as some of the mockers say, quickly, because He's a long-suffering God. Let me ask you this. Who weeps over their sin before God? 
before a holy God who weeps over their sin before Him. Probably not many of us. I've shared this verse with you three times already in this series, just quickly, Romans 2, 4-5. through Do you think lightly of the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. Beloved, okay, here's some good news. (laughs) We are living in the last days and God is judging, but God is saving you know, this is, one of those, this is an amazing age where God's wrath is beginning to be poured out, but God's mercy is still available. There's this commingling of, of wrath and grace. Romans 1.18 is, is true. It's, his wrath being revealed. Romans 2.4 is, is true. God's forbearance and kindness is evident. It's an amazing age in which we live. God's grace is available to those who do not deserve anything but the full weight of His omnipotent wrath. Beloved, you know, when you start to think biblically, you can't help, and if you're a Christian, you can't help but be thankful. You know, and I know some of us struggle with being thankful. If you get down into the theology, if you're a real Christian, and you understand what you deserve and what you get, that you deserve God's worst, you get God's best, you'll be thankful. You're not going to let all this little stuff irritate you so much. (laughs) You know? You have God's perspective on life. You're not sucked into the minutiae and dwelling in the minutiae. My minutiae is out of order. Beloved, remember. Remember what you deserve. And remember what God's done. You can deal with the minutia. <laughs> because He is who He is and He's done what He's done. You know, I heard Piper say, I heard Piper say, he said, you know, he said there's not much consequence if you dishonor a toad. You know, if you dishonor a toad, well, there's no great consequence in that, right? I mean, what's He going to do, you know? Get his other toad friends and come after you. I mean, I mean, what's going to happen? What's the worst can hap- can happen if you dishonor a toad? But if you dishonor God, well, we know what the Bible says. There are consequences. You ever seen an angry lamb? There will be one. He is in Revelation six. I won't go to the text. I'm sure you're aware of it. Before I leave Romans eight, let me just quickly talk about this. Uh, briefly comment on Romans eight twenty two. In and through God's righteous judgment of sin, He's also working renewal, recreation, rebirth, and resurrection. I want you to see that. These are the birth pains um, the text says here. The pains of childbirth. So God, in the midst of wrath, God is, is, God is doing uh, rebirth and regeneration and resurrection. This is how He is. He, he, he can multitask. And He's doing... These things. So how does natural calamity bear the marks of God's grace? That's what I want to go to Luke 13. You heard me read it earlier. If you go and read Luke uh, chapter 12, you see that, that uh, Jesus is warning about that He will ultimately judge the world. 
and that everyone within earshot should make peace with God while they have opportunity. But the question comes from the crowd. What about these recent calamities? What about this? And I want you to notice what Jesus does and does not do. He offers no explicit explanation of these calamities. And again, I'm over in Luke chapter 13. But He clearly says what we have already said. That those who die in disasters, whether natural or man-made, are no more guilty than those who survive and observe them. Essentially saying, lest you repent, you, ha- you deserve to have a tower fall on you too. I mean, this is the backward way of coming to what Jesus is saying. Most importantly, Jesus talks about the purpose of life, which is health, wealth, prosperity, and happiness, right? No! The purpose of your life, the purpose of inhaling and exhaling for you, is that you would repent. This is Jesus' point. Repent! That's the highest thing a human being can do. Repent and come to Christ. That's God's preeminent purpose for you and I to be reconciled to Him through the finished work of His Son. I like how Piper paraphrases this verse. He says, he says it's not that their sin is extraordinarily horrible, it's that it's ordinarily horrible. Do you understand? It's ordinarily horrible. The ones that put in the tower fail. It's not extraordinary. Their sin's not extraordinary. It's ordinary. It's just like yours. You deserve to have a tower fall on you too. Just like I do. Jesus says, unless you repent. He said it twice. Two different... Listen, when, when, when people come to you, why about this? What's, it, what's this about? What's this calamity about? Take them to Luke 13. Lest you repent, you too will likewise perish. You know, Jesus doesn't expound. He just says, lest we repent. Again, beloved, the world should not be shocked that men die either by natural causes or man-made calamity or natural calamity. The world should be amazed that God has given us yet one more day to experience His mercy and His grace. The amazing thing on this fallen planet is not that guilty sinners perish, but that God is slow to judge. I I hope I can turn your mindset tonight. I hope you can begin to think biblically about the world and the events in the world. I, I hope that we can all begin to think through the prism of the Word of God Jesus is reminding us we're all living on borrowed time. In short, when calamity and disaster comes, it is God's thunderclap to the living. Wake up! Wake up from your stupor! Wake up from your preoccupation with the minutiae! Look at me! Know me! Love me! Serve me! Be my disciple. Beloved, that's the highest call of any human being. God loves His people. He's calling us to a high thing, man. He's not giving us some little goofy thing to do. It's awesome what God calls us to do. Man arrogantly, mistakenly believed that 
a long and healthy, happy, prosperous, satisfying life is their right. They could not be further from, from the truth. It is not their right. Their only right is damnation. That is their right. They deserve justice before God. They will surely get justice. The world thinks something's wrong because something in my, my life is wrong. It should be right. Wrong! Beloved, don't look at the one thing that's wrong in your life. Try to count the million things that are right. Just try to count the blessings of God in your life. Just try. And if you can't think of any, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> uh, let me know. God doesn't preserve the lives of sinful men because they deserve to live. God preserves the lives of sinful men because He is a merciful God. Calamity of any kind is always a wake-up call to deal with ultimate reality. We need a Savior. You guys remember I shared this verse with you a couple of weeks ago, Ezekiel 33.11, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather desires that the wicked turn back from His way and live. You guys remember the great um, chorus in, in the book of Hebrews. God says it at least three times. Today, if you hear My voice, do not harden your hearts. Arrogant and ignorant men love to indict God when calamity strikes. But it's your job and my job to remind arrogant and ignorant men that God is not on trial. They are on trial. I think this is my last Piper quote. John Piper says, Man is so sinful that calamities should not shock us as though something unwarranted were coming upon innocent human beings. There are no innocent human beings. For the women who are studying through Romans, I, I think you've already uh, passed through Romans 3.10. There is none righteous, no, not one. Let me say parenthetically, as I begin to close here tonight. How do we speak about the Christians who die in natural or man-made disaster? You probably know, but let me remind you. We acknowledge that God is sovereign in both life and death. Amen? 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. We know that we are not exempt from the calamities of this fallen world. John 16.33 We know God ordains our days before we were conceived. Uh, Psalm 139.16 We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him. Those called according to His purpose. Romans 8.28 We know that precious in the sight of the, of the Lord is the death of His godly ones. I love that verse. I read it at my father's funeral. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His godly ones. Psalm 1, 16, 15. And as Paul said, with all boldness and earnestness, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Right? Philippians 1, 21. There's a lot more I could say about that. There's an ocean of theology there. Suffice to say, that we trust God with our lives and with our deaths. Amen? 
So, to David Hart of the Wall Street Journal, we reply, we, have, we do have license to speak because our Father God has spoken clearly. We don't have all the answers, but we have God's answer. Repent. Or you will likewise perish. And to American news analyst Daniel Shore, we reply, God does not answer you or anyone else, Mr. Shore. But we all must answer to Him, and we all have the same answer. We are guilty as charged. And to Rabbi Kushner, who contends that God is impotent, we reply, our God is the Almighty Creator God. He speaks and storms stand still. He speaks and earth's, the earth trembles. He speaks and galaxies stand forth. As we say almost every other sermon, He does all His good pleasure in heaven and earth. None can stay the mighty hand of Jehovah God. So, beloved, that's what's between verse 7 and verse 8. At least from my perspective as of the last few days. Between verse 7 and 8 of 2 Peter chapter 3, God has judged. God is judging. God will judge. Natural disaster is no indictment upon God, but upon you and me. The point of every deadly calamity is to remind us of the horror of our sin before a holy God, to remind us of the reality of God's wrath and our imminent death, and to remind us of God's merciful call to the living, repent and believe. Beloved, we are living in the last days when God is doing an amazing thing. His wrath is being revealed from heaven. And He is saving a people for Himself. Today is a day of grace. Today is a day of mercy. As I said a couple of weeks, as I've been saying since we've been talking about you know, these, these hard things, if you don't know Christ, if you don't know Him, if you've been only religious, if, it's, if He's just like, you know, like a, an icon to you, if, he's, if you don't know Him, come talk to me. We'll talk about it. We'll pray together. We'll try to see what the Word of God has to say. I'm going to close by simply reading where I left off last week and where I'll pick up next week. And you can tell me if you think, well, Jim, that, that shouldn't, you shouldn't have put that sermon between verse 7 and 8. Will you tell me? I don't know. It still makes sense to me. But let me just finish. I'll just read 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll start at verse 7. But the present heavens and earth by His Word are being reserved for fire kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. There it is. He will judge. I have judged. I will judge. Verse 8. You've got to love verse 8 and 9. We're going to make much of it next week. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Verse 9. The Lord is not slow about His promise as some count slowness, His promise of returning, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Do you hear it? <laughs> Verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, 
in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. God has judged. God is judging. God will judge. And the message tonight is, you go out in the world, you tell the world the truth, you tell them what Jesus said. What about this calamity? Repent. Or you too will likewise perish. Beloved, that's th if you don't have any other answer, use Jesus' answer, which is the best one.